Hi, and welcome to season two of our podcast, Innovation and the Future of Pharmacovigilance. This is a podcast series brought to you by Trudiant Talks. <clears throat> I'm your host, Indy Alawalia, and I'm delighted to navigate the dynamic world of pharmacovigilance and risk management with you. Uh, as always, a quick disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of the individual guest and do not necessarily reflect the official views of Trudiant Consulting or their own company. We're all about fostering insightful conversations here at Trudiant Talks, and we want you to know that any product, vendor, or service mentioned does not imply an endorsement. If you're seeking any professional advice from for specific situations, we encourage you to go speak to our experts. Please remember, this podcast content is meant for informational and educational purposes only. So, season two. And for episode one, we have today the incredible fortune to have the magnificent MBB Senior Director Safety Strategy at Oracle as our guest speaker. Michael, thank you so much for coming in and being our opener for season two. Thanks, Indy, for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, innovation. It's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Michael, um, you've been around the, the circuit, as it were, of, of PV. Um, but what I really want to know is, how did you get started in PV? Oh, well, that was many, many years ago. <laughs> Actually, about 30 years ago now. Um, I started uh, in the PV department of, uh, of Fujisawa. I was a student at that time. And my first job ever in PV was, um, was filing AE forms into patient binders. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, everything was still paper, right? So we used to get the AE forms on, on paper with carbon copy, real carbon copy. And I was pulling those apart and filing those in different binders. Uh, and uh, then I got offered a full-time job there. Um, I started out doing um, named patient use, compassionate use. So um, kind of administering that, that program. Then I did um, data entry of adverse events. Uh, and then um, I really did <laughs> almost everything in the PV department, learning by doing, right? So I, yeah. I studied linguistics, so nothing to do with pharma. I just happened to get that job filing papers uh, because um, somebody I knew in the pharmacovigilance department told me they have a student job open. <laughs> I, I so, think that's I think that's the way with a lot of people that they just suddenly oh here we are we're in PV and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so then I started uh, you know they they kind of saw that I had um, some some talent on on more on the database side so I started doing more IT type things um, I was actually. Uh, in the PV department, but kind of the interface between the business side of PV and then the actual IT department. Um, and then in the end, I was uh, managing a small group, three or four people um, called the safety data and quality management team. So the safety data management was basically um, being an admin for, uh, for Argus, uh, a business admin, so not a DBA, but like uh, going into uh, make you know making the configurations in Argus for uh, for studies and products and things like that, and also doing data retrieval, going in and uh, running reports and and uh, for for people in the department, and then the safety quality management side was writing SOPs mm -hmm. for the safety department. So yeah, that was a really interesting mix and uh, got to do a lot of exciting things. We, um, you know, we used to have a homegrown system when I started out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would, uh, when we needed a new uh, feature, I would just go down to the IT department, you know, one, <laughs> one level lower and say, uh, oh, could you put a field like this on the screen here? And they, they would like do it in real time and like, oh, how about this? Do you like this? <laughs> you know, this was <laughs> the days before validation and all that. Right? Yeah, yeah. 
And then, uh, yeah, the company decided to uh, get Argus uh, and migrate from our homegrown system. So I was involved in that project. And then, you know, Argus upgrades. Uh, and then, of course, um, E2B came along, right, where we moved from paper to electronic. And that was that was a really big deal, right? Uh, the EMA was there, but they didn't really have a lot of the um, authority that they have now. Um, mm -hmm. So we had to, you know, test E2B with each authority in Europe. Uh, and um, yeah, that was quite a long but very interesting project. So yeah, I, and I did that for like um, 13 years. Um, Fujisawa eventually became Estellas. Yeah. Uh, so I was there in the PV department uh, for 13 years. Then um, eventually I went to the vendor of Argus, uh, which was Relsys, uh, and started in the strategy uh, team there. And then um, after two years, we were acquired by Oracle. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I came to Oracle, stayed in the strategy team. And now I've been at uh, Oracle for 15 years. So, yeah, it's the time flies by, but it's it's actually been like three decades now doing TV. <laughs> wow, wow, and 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 you you like to stay places as well. You like to stay places <laughs> a, a long time. I do. <laughs> I admit it. <laughs> <laughs> and that you've you've had two very interesting changes in your career. Then you you went from Fujisawa, and then uh, did it get acquired by Stellus, or did it eventually just become Stellus? Um, it was a merger, really, between two similarly sized Japanese companies. Um, so, um, uh, so it was uh, my company was Fujisawa. The other com company was Yamanuchi, ah. and then they merged and changed the name to um, Estellas. Um, so that was interesting. Um, also, working for a Japanese company was was very interesting. You know, for thirteen years. Um, and I'm, I'm originally American, but living in Germany for 35 years now. So, you know, I was American living in Germany, working for a Japanese company, so <laughs> very global experience, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, what was that experience like? I mean, obviously compared to staying at Fujisawa, you didn't spend so much time at the combined Astellas. Um, was was there was there integration problems at the time or was it just the case that you felt it was time to move on um so actually they uh so there was a, a program to look at um the two safety systems that uh so yamanuchi and um fujisawa had two different safety systems we looked at both ones and we also looked at other safety systems and decided in the end to move um, everybody onto Argus. So there was a migration project, which I was part of. Um, and, um, and, and that was um, obviously successful. Um, and then the reason for them for leaving at the end was actually that they, um, uh, they had uh, from the two, uh, from the two predecessor companies, uh, Fujisawa and Yamanuchi, they had two European headquarters, uh, oh, okay. one in Munich, where I live, and one in the Netherlands. And um, uh, and then after some years of doing that, and they was separated by products, basically. So the, the Munich center took care of the, the products uh, from Fujisawa, legacy Fujisawa, and, and vice versa. And then they decided um, to to merge the two uh, departments into one, and they decided to close the the Munich office. Uh, and um, so that was the point when when I and uh, a lot of other people who wanted to stay in Munich, uh, you know, had had a, a house and family in Munich. Um, that was kind of the decision. Ah, so pretty pretty straightforward. And then the the second thing major that happened in your career was obviously you went to Relsys and then Relsys were acquired by Oracle. I mean, that must have been quite uh, a different state from a small company into a large conglomerate company. 
Yeah, that was also quite um, interesting. You know, I, I, I uh, learned about Relsys through just being a customer, through uh, being an Argus customer. And then I started going to, they had um, annual user group meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would often go to those and um, those were really interesting. I got to meet the, the people at Ralsis, got to meet the other customers, um, often was able to do presentations on, on what we were doing with Argus and hear how other customers are using Argus. So that's how I kind of got to know the Ralsis team and uh, really liked them. And um, that was kind of a big part of the decision to to go to Relsys. Um Yeah, with the acquisition then, um, so it's quite interesting. Relsys was a pretty small company, right? Um, in in Europe, I think we were five people altogether. Wow, uh, I didn't realize it was that small. Yeah, uh, I mean, the whole company was, was, was bigger than that. I think we were probably 130 people, something mm-hmm. like that, um, but mm-hmm. only five in Europe. Um, and so in a small company like that, you, you end up wearing many hats, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you jump to whatever needs to be done, right? <laughs> so although I was, you know, officially in the strategy department, um, strategy was uh, just part of my job, right? So I was mm-hmm. involved in, um, in uh, a, a fairly big project to implement Argus at a large pharmaceutical company. Um, and, uh, you know, just sort of jumped around to many different things that had, that needed to be done. Right. That's the way a small company works. So with the acquisition by Oracle, um, you know, I really got a chance to focus on the strategy part Uh, and, um, because that, you know, obviously Oracle has enough people to, to do all the different jobs. And then, um, so that was actually um quite nice in a way um to to be able to focus on strategy and not have to sort of jump into a hundred other things um but um but of course you know it's it's a large company and uh it's large company culture uh, is is different to small company culture uh and so um yeah that that is a change um but um you know, Oracle is acquiring companies all the time, so they have mm-hmm. actually a very uh, sort of time-honored process. The way that they do that, and the the uh, onboarding and and so on, um, they're used to that. So often, when you meet other people from Oracle, the uh, first question is uh, native or acquired. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. And you've been at Oracle for 15, 15 years. Yeah. Give or take. 15 years now with the with the change to the new year, yeah. Wow. And 15 years. The Argus was uh it must have been a fairly early number, maybe three or four when you first started. Is that right? Uh, so Argus was born in 1997, actually. Uh, and uh, went through many, many innovations um, over the years. Uh, so let's see. I, when I joined, um, I think there was already the the web version of Argus. Right, it started out as a as a client server application, then switched to web. Um, and I think shortly after uh, I joined, we introduced. Um, Argus Cloud for the first time. Mm-hmm. We introduced um, Argus Analytics for the first time. Uh, we introduced the CRO mode for Argus with the multi-tenancy supporting multiple clients. So it was a really interesting time to join uh, and uh, a lot of uh, exciting things happened along the way. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine the 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 changes from when you joined to where where it is now must be must be um, must be uh, really significant. Um, there is a there is a level of uh, disdain towards Argus, though, for not being necessarily innovative. Um, what 
What's your thoughts on that? So I have heard that as well. Um, I think there's three reasons behind that. Um, so first of all, I think it's not actually true. <laughs> I think we are quite um, innovative. I mean, in the last three years alone, um, we have introduced a completely new UI for Empirica, um, which makes for has like um, built-in dashboards, built-in visualizations, makes work much more efficient, much less much less clicks to get to where you want to go, and um, seeing basically important things uh, on the screen and in color that you need to attend to right away. Uh, we introduced um, Safety One Intake, which is our very first AI-powered product in Oracle Life Sciences. So that is um, using AI to automatically extract information from uh, safety source documents, whether they're structured or unstructured documents, and put them directly into Argus, which basically bypasses the manual data entry step in Argus, right? So uh, it's a huge time saver. Um, what else? We just introduced our first AI feature in Argus. Probably many people don't know about that, and that is a feature for uh, automatic translation of uh, its outbound translation. So, um, for instance, if you have to send the narrative to a certain authority in a certain language, you can use that. Um, so I think um, we are actually quite innovative, but people might not uh, might not know about it. And that leads me sort of to the second reason is um, I think people are getting a lot of their information from third parties, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I heard that Argus hasn't changed in years, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I would encourage people to, you know, come to the source. Please contact me or uh, anyone at Oracle, and we can really tell you about the innovative things that we've been doing. Um, one good way to stay up to date is the Oracle Safety Consortium. Uh, where we meet uh, on a monthly basis uh, remotely, and we try to meet um, twice a year face-to-face, -face, uh, once in Europe, once in North America. And there you can really get um, very you know, up-to-date news about what we're doing, uh, also what other customers are, are doing, and so on. And then the third reason which might be the most important reason um, is something is our approach to innovation, I think, which is called um, continuous innovation, uh, which is sort of a, an approach to continuously innovate uh, uh, in an incremental way, always adding on um, new innovations over time. And that is in contrast to discontinuous innovation, which is much more disruptive and, uh, and flashy, right? So um, I think part of it is that we have this continuous innovation approach where we are steadily innovating, bringing out new innovations with every release, um, but it might not be as, as flashy as um, some other vendors, right? Um, However, I think that the continuous innovation approach is the right way to go in safety um, because, um, you know, this is a high-risk business, right? There are, there are patient lives at stake here, right? And um, nothing against being disruptive, um, you know, which can be good, but uh, you have to be careful, right, in, a, in an area of high risk like patient safety. Um, and that's why we kind of decided not to, you know, not to throw out Argus and Empirica and start over, right? Both those products were, uh, they just uh, both happened to be, uh, um, first release was in 1997, so they're over 25 years now. And instead of seeing that as, uh, a liability, we see that as an asset, right? Because first and foremost, uh, a safety system has to be compliant, right? And that compliance is not 
easy, right? For, for people on the outside of the safety world looking in, it seems sometimes um, easy to make a safety system, right? You just make a rules engine and, and you're good to go, right? But, you know, we've seen through experience that it, it's a lot more than that, right? Regulations are, are changing throughout the world ever faster. Uh, they're on different schedules, right? So Japan has a different release schedule from EMA and FDA. And then even things which are supposed to be worldwide standards like E2BR3, every country or region has their own flavor, right? Where they have yeah. their own fields, right? Yeah. And so things are constantly changing. Um, the health authorities now have a trend a new trend, which is um, even if they're not sort of finished with the with the new regulation, they already put it into production, and then they <laughs> they kind of see how it works, and then they get feedback, and then they change things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then and they're giving uh, pharma companies even, uh, ever smaller and smaller time periods to prepare. Um, so yeah, it's a very you know difficult situation to have control over and make sure that you're compliant. And, you know, it took us years of hard work, uh, working with the authorities, working with customers to get, our, you know, Argus and Empirica compliant. And we don't want to throw that away, right? Because when you start from brand new, it's always the problem with 1.0 software, right? And you have to work out the kinks and there's going to be lots of bugs and you know, trying to be compliant with all these regulations around the world as they're in movement changing is really, really hard. So, um, you know, we see the, the maturity of the systems as, uh, as an asset. It's a strong foundation that we innovate on top of, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so we're adding AI features to Argus, to Empirica, uh, to Safety One Intake. Um, but built on that strong, strong foundation rather than starting from scratch. And uh, that approach, you know, is it probably makes less of an impact, less of a flash in the marketplace where it makes it look, because the products have a long history, it looks like we're not doing anything um, when in fact uh, we are. And, uh, and you can see that if you, you know, if you talk to me and <laughs> we can show you <laughs> what we're doing, right? I think, I mean, truly uh, in my heart, I think Argus and Empirica are really, really good pieces of software. I, I think mm -hmm. they're, I honestly believe that. And, um, and I think they're our strongest assets. Thank you, Michael. I know that was a, <laughs> it was a <laughs> tough question. <laughs> But I, I, I had to, I had to ask it. And actually, you touched, you touched upon something there, which um, is really interesting, which is uh, how vendors interact with regulatory authorities, specifically the EMA. Um, it's noted, you know, recently, we've had two regulatory agencies go with more, uh, let's call them what everyone else calls them, which is next generation safety software. Um, we've had the MHRA, obviously, um, they've chosen Halo PV from Insife. Um, and we had uh, the EMA choose RX Logics. Um, now, I remember in some meetings, in some information days with the EMA where they were very much unwilling to work with vendors. It seems that they've totally gone the other way and suddenly opened up but maybe not to to yourselves i don't know what your what your thoughts on that is mm -hmm. uh so we do work with uh health authorities there are um a few health authorities that use our software um yeah in the end that is their decision right we um we think we have a, a strong offering uh, on both the, the case management and signal management side of things. Of course, for health authorities, um, the, the, the signaling and analysis part is more important uh, than the, the case processing, right, which they have to do sometimes, but most of the times uh, that is done by the pharma companies. Um, uh, but, um, but we do work with uh, 
uh, with several health authorities. And actually, you know, Empirica was uh, created through basically a co-development with the FDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so we were used to working with health authorities and we'll continue to do so uh, no matter, you know, if, uh, if individual health authorities decide to go with other systems. Uh, but, um, but yeah, we're happy to, to work with them and we think we have a, a strong offering for, for them as well as for, uh, you know, pharma companies, uh, biotechs, uh, medical device companies, um, CROs. Um, so I think we have a, a strong presence in, um, in all the different life science organizations. And another thing I was just thinking about was the, um, maybe going back to the innovation piece, which is there's, there's a lot of lofty claims being told right now. Um, one of the ones that I hear a lot is about touchless cases. And the reality is now there is no single software that could truly do touchless cases. In your opinion, do you think truly touchless is close or do you think PV is not ready yet for true touchless cases? I don't think we're there quite yet. We're on the pathway to get there. Um, We are working on um, uh, something called augmented AI, where it's basically the AI and people working together. Um, So in some cases, the AI can make um, decisions. In other cases, you want the AI to... Um, sort of make an analysis and provide uh, candidates, let's say, but then the human makes the final decision. So let's uh, take duplicate check as an example. Um, So the AI can look in the database and see if there are good candidates for for being a duplicate. Um, It can give a score to each candidate as to how confident it is that that it is a true duplicate case. So let's say from zero to 100, and it can present you know, the uh, user with, let's say, the top 10 and with their scores. But then the user can make the final decision, right? So I think we're first sort of, sort of moving into that tor- territory with augmented AI. Um, and um, you know, until people become more familiar and um, through testing, uh, see that the AI is actually doing doing its job um, before we we move to true touchless. Um, the other thing is, if I can sort of continue with this uh, continuous innovation approach I was talking about before, hmm. I think it's a mistake to try to um, make your entire workflow touchless uh, in one fell swoop, mm-hmm. right? Because um, first of all, it's a huge task. Um, there's lots of things that <laughs> you have to do. Uh, second of all, if something goes wrong, uh, right, and something probably will go wrong in the first attempt, you won't know where the problem is, right? Because you've, instead of just changing one thing, you've changed a hundred things, and now something went wrong along the way, uh, Where where's the problem, right? So um, I like to advocate uh, this continuous innovation approach where you start with one one thing you want to automate with AI. And which thing do you start with? Uh, Well, we also had that question and we we decided to start with um, case intake. Why? Because um, it's one of the steps because of the manual data entry part of intake. That's one of the steps that takes the most time, right? In in the in the workflow, and of course, you're trying to process the case as as quickly as possible, so that you get the expedited report out the door as quickly as possible, so that you stay compliant, right? Um, and so, you know, when we looked at how much time it takes in, in the different parts of the workflow, case intake seemed like um, a good return on investment. Like you could 
focus on that and, um, you know, maybe get, uh, uh, you know, reduce the time uh, that it takes to process a case by 50%, let's say, because, because manual data entry takes so long, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other good thing about intake, so you can also say, for instance, medical review takes a long time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but with, with case intake, you have, you have the correct answer there, right? You have, you have the source document that you can always look at and see, did the AI do it right? right? Did it, uh, so in our, in our case, safety one intake is extracting the information out of the, uh, out of the document automatically and populating that, uh, that extracted information into the Argus fields, right? But if you, if you want to check if it did it right, you can always open the source document, uh, which is also stored in Argus, and, and just check. With medical review, that's not so easy, right? So mm -hmm. if the AI is doing the medical review and you want to check, did it do the right answer? How do you check that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why um, case intake seems like the ideal way to start. But, you know, it might be different in different organizations. You should look at where, you know, in your process, where your bottlenecks are, where your pain points are, where you have a lot of manual processes, and focus on those first. And then get that right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, implement the AI or the automation if you're, if you're not using AI. Um, and then, um, you know, do sampling. Do a lot of sampling at the beginning. Um, sampling is when you just do the process manually to check that the AI is doing it correctly. And then over time, you can reduce the sampling rate. Um, you should probably never reduce it to zero because um, inspector from the health authority can come and, and ask you, you know, how, how are you sure that the AI is doing the right thing? But, you know, even with human uh, humans doing the work, you're, you're also doing... Uh, probably a QA uh, or QC check every month, right? You take some random sampling of cases from the past month and you, you double check them that they've been entered the right way by the humans. So it's the same thing with the AI, right? You, you'll do a random sampling uh, every month uh, and, and check some of the cases and, and see that the AI did, did the proper work. Um, and only once you get that right, then would I move into the next area. Uh, and then, you know, work one area at a time until you have a fully automated process. So that, that I think, is in a, in a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> that is how I think we're going to get to touchless case processing, ultimately. Um, those saying now, you know, you can do touch, touchless case processing today. Uh, and it's easy, you know, just install our product and you move to touchless like that. I frankly, I, I don't believe them. That's that's a fair point. I've, um, I like I said, I've seen a lot of lofty claims. I've seen there's another part to AI which I don't necessarily want to, uh, to carry on talking about, but th there are things about how how the models will be trained, how the models will be validated, who owns the data that trains that uh, that model if that model is using that data to train on uh then who owns the model Th there's so many there's so many questions that that are there which are which are very easy to overlook but i suspect in the future um will become very prevalent uh in 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 our industry but i was thinking about something that you'd said which was about processes and I wanted to again go back to this question. I'm sorry <laughs> about about this um, sort of frustration with Argus. Do you think some of it actually is due to the fact that when people bring in a system, uh, they could be at a competitor and they move to to Argus, or they uh, haven't got a system and the first system that they use is Argus. It's a lot of the frustration actually from the fact that the processes have not been changed. And so they expect Argus to be the process and not at all. Is it, Could that be also one of the areas where it, it comes from? I think so, yes. We've actually, um, 
been working with a lot of customers over the last five years on optimizing their workflow and their processes. Mm -hmm. um, I think this comes from the fact that many people developed their um, case processing workflow in the days of paper, right? Mm -hmm. Where you literally were moving, you know, uh, a, a paper AE form from one person's desk to another, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, things are, are much different today. They're very electronic. Um, a lot of those um, steps in the workflow might not make any sense anymore, right? But people get sort of stuck in doing things a certain way and you do it for years and then um, and then it just becomes the way to do things, right? So we've been working with um, quite a few customers. I think it's more than 25 by now on optimizing um, optimizing their workflow. So, uh, you know, really looking at the steps. Um, are all those steps necessary? Do things need to be modified? And are things being done manually that could be automated, right? There's actually a lot of automation features built into Argus that not everyone knows about um, that allow you to automate many of the, the steps within Argus. Um, it, you know, some of those automations may make sense for you as a company, some may not. Um, some may depend on what kind of case it is. You know, you may want to put more automation on non-serious cases than serious cases, for example. Um, but I, I agree with you. Um, a lot of um, a lot of things can be helped, uh, made more efficient by by looking at the processes and seeing how how those can be made more efficient. And of course, when you automate, when you move to AI, you also have to look at changing your your processes, right? To um, to adapt to that new technology, people will be doing things uh, in in a different way sometimes slightly different, sometimes uh, more different. And then, you know, you have to have people who um, who are familiar with what the AI is doing, are able to, let's say, retrain the AI when that's needed, be able to validate the AI, be able to explain to an inspector what the AI is doing, right? So yeah, um, you know, process change uh, is, is a big, part of this whole equation, I think, uh, you know, with the, um, in quotes, you know, digital transformation, right? That's, uh, mm -hmm. that's part of all that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Last year, we did a webinar um, talking about uh, change, uh, people uh, in the change and, you know, culture, etc. And that's just as important as well. I think it, it tends to get knocked off when we, with regards to um, any sort of digital transformation, I think the the conversation about people always tends tends to go away. Um, another thing that we've we've spent a lot of time in the last series of um, the podcast talking about is about the fact that there are less uh, entry level roles um, in PV now um, because yeah, they're either outsource to big vendors in in either eastern europe or in in asia um and someone like yourself someone like me who actually started very junior in in pv uh and the roles that will probably be around like you said you, you were talking about your augmented ai i think I, i've called it human in the loop in 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 the past which is you need some experience to be able to do any of that. So where do the entry level jobs come from in, 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 in your opinion? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I mean, I think um, perhaps people are now um, starting more at CROs rather than the, the um, pharma company directly. Um, it's also, of course, um, you know, when people are looking at areas to, to study, uh, I think now data science is a very interesting area. Uh, it's going to become more and more relevant for PV, right? So if you still, 
if you're still uh, studying and thinking about, you know, what are relevant areas to study, uh, I would rec really recommend data science. And if you can do sort of a specialization in, in pharmacovigilance, even better, right? There's very few people in the world <laughs> that know uh, both of those things. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I think the AI isn't really getting rid of jobs. I think it is allowing the PV department to focus their human resources on more um, high level activities, right? High value activities. Um, so uh, yeah, you may not be um, doing data entry of cases anymore, but you know, is that really such an exciting job? Uh, <laughs> would, you, would you be more interested in, um, you know, uh, doing medical review or, or signal detection, right? Or analysis of the data, um, you know, querying, querying the database and things like that. So um, I think there's, there's um, you know, where, where the pharma company had to focus a lot of their resources on kind of these routine um, tasks that are, are, don't bring a lot of value but have to be done. Now they can, you know, if they give that to the AI, then they can focus their human resources on, on much more interesting work, I think. And um, so I think there will always be le uh, entry level work, but it just, it looks completely different than, you know, that that first job that I did of where they, they handed me a stack of papers like this pig and said, file this. I think those days are, are gone. And uh, I think we're all happy that they are. <laughs> I, 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 it was funny. I was thinking just the other day, um, when I was at AIDSI, we we used to have uh, paper uh, files as well. And I remember when the discussion happened about first going into uh, non-paper format, basically PDFs, uh, and not printing things out. I, I, I remember the very early conversations of that, and that was scandalous at the time. Um, and e even going to e-fax, like not having a physical fax. Mm -hmm. um, and and you're right. I mean, you talk about data science. I mean, let's be honest here. You were um, you were um, big on the analytics side for for a majority of your career in Oracle. So you you do have a little soft spot for that. <laughs> I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the whole point of this podcast has. Uh, is really to talk about the innovation and future. That's the name of the podcast. And we've talked a lot about AI today. We've talked a tiny bit about data analytics. But where? what is the next step for PV? What is? Where do we go from here? So I think um, the answer to that is real-world data. Mm -hmm. um, we have, you know, we're used to, um, looking at um, certain sort of traditional data sets for many years uh, in PV, right? We look at um, data uh, databases of adverse reactions. Uh, those can be private databases like Argus. Those can be public databases like FAIRS and VAERS and Vigibase. Um, we're used to looking at literature databases, right, literature articles. We're used to looking at clinical trial data, SAEs coming from clinical trials. Um, what I think is a, a really exciting new area is the so-called secondary use of data. So that is, you know, that is real world data that was designed for some other purpose, not, not really for safety but can be used for safety purposes, right? So we're talking about um, electronic health records, right? Uh, we're talking about administrative claims data, um, which, can, which are basically used to decide, um, you know, how to fund healthcare. So that can either come from a health insurance company or it can come from the government, right? Um, so those kinds of real-world data sets, um, I think, are, are a treasure trove. 
um, because um, you could you could find signals in there potentially, uh, or maybe you could validate signals uh, that you find. Sort of, you find the signal in the traditional data sets, and then you want to validate it in the real world data. Um, so I think that is a really interesting area, and I think that you know, in addition to to moving to AI, I think this is where the future of pharmacovigilance is going. Um, now the challenge is when you have more and more data sets, uh, how do you evaluate the answers that you're getting across multiple data sets, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that different data sets have different strengths, right? Um, clinical trial data is usually very, uh, you know, very good data, validated data. There's just not a lot of it, right? Because there's not many patients in a clinical trial. So each, each data set has kind of its strengths and weaknesses. So the first challenge is to kind of develop algorithms that are specific to that data set to, to kind of take advantage of the strengths of that data set and, and get the best results. And then when you get results from these different data sets, let's say you're looking for a signal score for a particular product event combination. So let's say you get one signal score from data set A and a different signal score from data set B and another signal score from data set C. So which one is correct, right? <laughs> um, so we are working on this thing which we call multimodal signaling that um, kind of aggregates the, the signal scores across multiple data sets and comes up with um, one signal score that, that kind of takes into account the different signal scores. So trying to help people understand, you know, uh, getting more data is great. In safety, more data is always better. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then how to interpret that, that data um, is, is the next challenge, and, and we're trying to work on, on ways to, to help people do that. I think that's fascinating. I was I, I, when when you were talking about where the data comes from, even the real world data you were talking about. That's still quite sanitized data, though, isn't it? There's 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 a there's a biggie out there which no one wants to touch, um, which is actual real world social media data, which I can see why people don't want to touch, but it's still a, something untapped, right? It's still a problem that people don't know the answer to. That's right, and we're we're also looking into that, um, and some some companies are doing that as well. Um, some pharma companies. Um, there has been, um, you know, a few years ago, there was this uh, PPP project, private public uh, partnership. Uh, called Web Radar, mm -hmm. where they looked at that exactly right. They, they did a, a study over several years, and they looked at, um, you know, signals that they could find in social media data, and then, you know, whether they would have found those signals uh, earlier using the social media data. And I think the, the answer was pretty much negative, right? It, mm -hmm. it, they, the conclusion was that it didn't really bring a value. Um, but, um, you know, it's still, I think, uh, an open question. I think people are still looking at that. There's of course, different kinds of social media data, right? Um, uh, there's, there's, you know, Facebook and Twitter or X, I guess now. <laughs> uh, and then there's like really focused social media, like patients like me, right? Where you have patients, uh, that might all share a particular illness, are getting together and, and discussing among themselves. And, you know, uh, part of what they're discussing might be what therapies they're taking and if they're having any side effects from those therapies, right? And you might look at that data as high, having a higher veracity than, uh, you know, something that's coming off of, of Facebook, um, so that, I think, is an element of it. Um, but I think it's something we're continuing to explore. 
uh, and um, could very well be a part of uh, this this big data landscape uh, that we're looking at of, of all these different data sets. And, and you're right, it is a, a form of real world uh, data as well. Yeah, and actually, again, it got me thinking. Uh, I was thinking of the the big data companies. Obviously, Oracle is is one of them, but you have AWS, you have um, Google, you have uh, obviously Facebook and WhatsApps and all that whole company. Meta is it now? Um, right. uh, so you have you have these big conglomerates that hold a lot of data. And the syncing of that data will obviously be crucial. I, I'm, we're talking light years away from 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 now, but it is still something that needs to be considered in the future about how people get uh, the right data to be able to prescribe the correct infom- uh, prescribe the correct drugs for the particular syndromes that they that they've got um, and. Uh, I had that conversation with Tony D'Souza uh, as the end uh, season one, and I, I can't forget it. It's it's fascinating, and we I guess what I'm trying to get that is that we must remember that patient safety is the ultimate goal of what we're doing, um, and as long as we can get the right drugs to the right people at the right time, then we're doing our jobs correctly. Exactly, exactly. And we're, we're actually working on, um, on a concept. Uh, so what you just described is precision medicine, right? Getting the right mm-hmm. medication to the right patient at the right time. We're working on something called precision pharmacovigilance, which actually uses this real-world data uh, as a component. And it's about um, avoiding the wrong medication to the wrong patient at the wrong time or identifying those risks basically right and uh and you're right that that is what it's uh, ultimately all about um you know it's it's protecting the patient from harm uh and um you know we have to i think we have to keep that in mind as we as we think about um you know these new technologies and and putting them in place uh we have to we have to be careful right and we have to uh, and we have to be compliant, and we have to keep the patient in the center of the picture. Uh, that that's the ultimate thing that we're doing. That's why I'm I'm doing this job. Actually, uh, I you know I never expected to be working in pharmacovigilance, <laughs> but uh, as soon as I started, I, I I realized, wow, I can make a real impact on the world. Right, I can make the world safer for people, which is really fantastic right michael thank you so much for joining me today it's uh it's been a fascinating conversation and i'm glad you answered some of the more tougher questions which uh i wanted to ask so thank you (laughs) 